uh, that passage that we read from John's Gospel, and particularly, as I mentioned, verse uh, 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There are four things involved in the verse that I want to draw out this morning. Four things that applied uh, then to those that were with Jesus, and four things that apply to you uh, this morning, because Jesus is alive and Jesus still speaks, and Jesus speaks today. The first thing is a decision, a decision that you have to make about Jesus. There were many in those days who followed uh, the Lord, but gradually, step by step, their number dwindled. Back in chapter 2 of John and verse 23, it says that when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. So there, very early on in the ministry of Jesus, you see that he was very popular, and yet he was wary of the crowds. He knew that their enthusiasm was very superficial and that it would be short-lived. There were many who were wowed by the miracles that Jesus performed. There were many that wanted to be seen with Jesus. And popularity, of course, breeds on itself. Even in this very chapter of John's Gospel, chapter 6, having fed the 5,000, there were those that wanted to take Jesus on the basis of his obvious authority and power and make him king. That's how determined they were. And they would have actually, verse 15, taken him by force. They would have more or less hijacked Jesus and made him king, but he withdrew to the mountain by himself. He knew what his mission was, and it wasn't to be popular. It wasn't to be powerful. It wasn't to be a king. And gradually, as the chapters of John unfold, and as Jesus preaches to the people, and they begin to see what he's really about, and they begin to listen to the claims that he makes about himself, they don't like it. And they begin to turn away. They begin to take offense at Jesus. And firstly, the multitude, and then some of the disciples, not initially the 12, the core of them, but some of the wider group of disciples, uh, they are turned off Jesus, and they drift away. Verse 41 and 42, uh, it says, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father 
and mother we know. How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? They were annoyed by the fact that he claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And the more that he says the kind of thing that he says in John chapter 6, the more offended they are. To be told in effect that you can do nothing towards your own salvation. They didn't like verse 65. Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. We already know that they couldn't grasp spiritual things. And even the, the most uh, well-known of their teachers, Nicodemus, when Jesus speaks to him in chapter 3 about the need to be born again and accept a man is born from above, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus, great scholar that he is, doesn't see and can't accept and takes things on a very literal basis. What do you mean? Must I go back to my mother's womb and be, and be born again? You are not making any sense at all. And now when Jesus speaks about him being the bread of life and the bread that comes down from heaven, and then to speak about the need to eat his uh, body, uh, to feed on his flesh, and to drink his blood. That's the last straw for them. They cannot see the spiritual meaning of what Jesus is saying. They are offended. And they say, don't they, in verse uh, 52, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And verse 60, many of his disciples heard it and said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? There's a big test now. What are those disciples going to do? That larger group who are following him, as well as the, the twelve themselves. What are they going to do? Verse 66 and 67. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Here's the crunch point. It's good that they've come thus far. It's good that they're with Jesus and they're listening to him. But these things that Jesus is speaking Will those things make them turn back in offence and unbelief? Or will they hold on to them and trust him and accept his authority and their need of him? It's great to be with Jesus in the sense of being in church. And it's good that you're here this morning, either in person or watching online But what about this 
matter of who Jesus claims to be, that he claims to be bread from heaven, that he claims to be essential for spiritual life, that he claims exclusively to be the way and the truth and the life. And this dynamic, this situation now, uh, where there are those that are turning back, those that are being faced by this decision, that dynamic applies all the time. Nothing is static in life. There's always movement. The decision is always facing us. Are we pressing on or are we going back? Are we embracing what Jesus says, or are we saying, that's too much for me? It offends my intellect. It offends my pride. It offends my self-sufficiency. I've had enough. I'm going back. I'll keep the outward form. I'll keep the church going. I'll keep the decency. I'll keep the outward conformity to believing in God and being a good person, but don't tell me about the cross, and don't talk to me about the blood, and don't talk to me about sin and the need to repent. Jesus then is, in his preaching on this occasion, is sifting, isn't he? Isn't he? And his message today sorts out who are really committed to following him part of that book of Hebrews that we read at the very beginning has verses that say, in effect, are we of those who press on to the saving of the soul, or are we of those who draw back? Are you going to decide that you're ashamed of Jesus and his words are you going to go away as well, uh, Jesus says? Are you going to drift? Are you going to make your own comforts your priority? Are you going to neglect Jesus because you don't understand the cross and you haven't seen your own sin? Where will you go? What's your option when it comes to your destiny, your future, your soul. What will you do? Where will you go? The thing that's very clear, thinking about this decision that must be made, is that it isn't a decision between Jesus and other equally valid options. That's what many people think. That it doesn't matter so much whether it's Jesus or Muhammad or Krishna it doesn't matter so much which religious route you use because in the end, it'll get you to God anyway. Is that your view this morning? Because it's not the Bible's view. Jesus is not one of several comparable valid options. It's only him. As an example, if um, between ourselves somebody was to ask others in the church, oh, 
where would you recommend I go to get my roof fixed or my car serviced or my hair done? Or where would you recommend I go to get financial advice? Usually there are several valid answers. Some will be cheaper and some will be more expensive. Some will be familiar and others not. But there will be several answers. You can go to so-and-so in my stay, you can go to so-and-so in Bridgend or whatever. And you can choose between those options and each will provide a decent enough service and the job will be done. But it's very clear here, isn't it, that the choice that the disciples must make is either Jesus or nothing. It's either Jesus or it's death. It's either Jesus or it's darkness because there is no one else who has the words of eternal life. And it's Peter, isn't it, uh, as usual, who jumps in first with the answer to Jesus' question. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then secondly, the verse involves devotion to a person, to Jesus. There's a decision to be made, but it involves devotion to the person of Jesus. And here's the essence of the gospel. We're not concerned so much with going to places, even though Peniel, the building here, is a very suitable uh, place to meet and we no doubt have places that are special uh, to us. We're not going on a pilgrimage, as many do, to Mecca or to Lourdes in the south of France or to Noc in Ireland or to Santiago de Compostela in Spain, depending on your particular religion. We're not making a pilgrimage to a holy place. It's to a person. You cannot pour your heart out to a place or to a building. We come to Jesus. He's the one who draws our hearts. He's the one who's all sufficient. Nothing else will do. That's why Nicodemus had to learn about being born again, as though all his knowledge and all his learning was insufficient. And it's significant, isn't it, in John chapter 2, that when Jesus performs his first miracle or sign, the changing of the water into wine at the wedding of Cana, that the water he uses is in these great pots that held the water, the ceremonial water for the religious washing that the Jews used. And Jesus is surely saying that those old ways are no longer enough. Something new, something better has arrived. Everything is focused in that one person. And if any flaw could be found in him, 
then the whole cause is lost. It's gone. All the merit is in him. And if you're a Christian this morning, every single one of your eggs is in that one basket. You can't afford to hedge your bets. You can't afford to spread your investments. It's all in Jesus. All your money has to be on him. We're used to our political leaders uh, having flaws, aren't we? And although much is often made of them, and although they achieve popularity, they are flawed people. But here is Jesus, perfect and all-sufficient, God in the flesh. So it's never to do with a place, it's never to do with a thing, it's always him. And that's why, isn't it, in the next chapter of John, chapter 7, and it's the time of the, the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. It's a massive celebration. Everyone is there. And Jesus, uh, nearing the end of chapter 7, uh, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. As though he's saying, this is the greatest that the old system can do. This is the greatest and the best that religion can do, that ritual can achieve. But it's not enough. You're still thirsty, aren't you? Your soul is not satisfied. So, if you're thirsty, come to me. As the Scripture has said, so, if you know your Old Testament, he's saying to these Jews, then you would see in me the fulfillment of these great promises of God, water irrigating the desert, everlasting life coming, and peace with God, the kingdom arriving. They all find their fulfillment in me. The psalmist says, Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's no one I desire apart from you. It's Jesus only, none but him. And the only thing that matters this morning, the test that really matters is what do you think of him? Not whether you believe in God. The demons believe in God and it makes them shudder. But what do you make of Jesus? And then thirdly, involved in the verse that uh, we have read is dependence on Jesus. Let's read verse 68 uh, again. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So you see, Jesus has been proclaiming himself to be the bread of 
that comes from heaven, and that those who would receive him must, as it were, eat his flesh and drink his blood. They must receive him in his totality, in everything that he claims to be. And now Peter correctly identifies that with the words of eternal life. So, hearing, grasping, receiving, believing the words that come from Jesus is to be fed. It is to eat his flesh. It is to receive him in all that he proclaims himself to be. So, Peter is saying, we, as for me and the others, we will go to the one who has the words of eternal life. So, verse uh, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit, life. The words that I've spoken are spirit and life. And the words of Jesus are not the same as our words. Our words fill the air and drift away and are forgotten. Jesus' words have power with them. They're creative utterances. It was he who was in the beginning with the word. It was he who said, let there be light and there was light. The verse speaks about a dependence on the words of Jesus. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If we're honest with ourselves, then we would acknowledge that we don't have the words of eternal life, that we don't have wisdom, we don't have the knowledge of God that we need. God had to make that first step. God had to come down in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, to bring a true knowledge of Him, to bring salvation. We are dependent upon Him. The hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. We mentioned the miracle of the five loaves and the two fishes earlier. They were hungry people, and Jesus fed them. How did he multiply the fish and the loaves in his hands? We don't know, but he did it. He has life in himself. He is the life giver. He abolishes death and brings life and immortality. He removes the sting of death. He has gone into death and come out the other side and deprived it of its power to terrify and to hurt the believer. And then, lastly, implied in the verse, there is a danger of being 
without Jesus. There's a danger in going away. What's the other alternative? If we're not following Jesus, if we're not walking with him, the other option is to be going away. Somebody has said it's like a, an escalator that's always going downwards. And if you're not constantly going forwards and going up, the escalator will draw you down. That's the way the world is and the way our heart is made. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, the world, the flesh, the devil, they will be drawing us down. And we must be of those that are going on with Jesus, being with him in his care, listening to his words, the words of life, everlasting life. And so we need to be clear what it means to be going away from Jesus. It is to separate yourself from those words of everlasting life. There's life and there's death. There's light and there's darkness. Where will you go? What's your strategy? What's your plan for heaven, for being saved? For many, they followed the scribes and the Pharisees and just obedience to the law. But that was an impossible burden, Jesus says. There was the law of God, and then there were 600 and more regulations that applied to your daily life. And they were impossible. And even if it was in theory possible to obey all those outward rules and keep yourself within the boundaries. What about the heart? Could you pretend that your heart was clean and that your heart was in order and all your desires and lusts and emotions, could you pretend that they were all pure? How can you ever be saved? How can you ever achieve heaven by relying on your own works? It's a deceit. To go anywhere other than Jesus and the gospel and the salvation that he offers is to subject yourself to futility and waste. And there are many here who will testify, having become Christians and looking back on their lives, that they spent years in futility and waste, in restlessness, in lostness, until they came to Jesus. I want to say to you this morning that it was, it's not too late. Now is the day of reckoning with these things. Now is the day when it is still possible for you to choose life to choose Jesus, to receive these words that have power within them. 
There's a very somber note, isn't there, at the end of John 6 concerning Judas, and it was certainly too late for him. After this great confession uh, that Peter makes, verse 70, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. What an awful thing to think that Judas was one of the twelve, and mysteriously that Jesus had picked him, had chosen him to be with him and to be involved in the mission and the ministry of the apostles. But all the while, Judas was scheming and plotting and despising Jesus and ultimately for 30 pieces of silver betrayed him to the death of the cross. It was too late for Judas, but it's not too late for you. Will you forgive me um, a Christmas-based illustration in in the height and the heat of uh, a summer's Sunday? It'll be here before too long. You know of Ebenezer Scrooge in Dickens' story, The Christmas Carol. And you know that Scrooge was a a grasping miser of a man, and he spread his misery everywhere he went. And then the three spirits come to him, and the third spirit is the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And it shows him what the future holds if his life continues its current course. So, where his greed will lead him. And it's a bleak future. He's taken to a sadly neglected grave in an overgrown churchyard. And the spirit's finger points him to his name inscribed on the tombstone, Ebenezer Scrooge. And he's neglected and unmourned. Scrooge is terrified and asks the spirit, are these the shadows of things that will be, or are they the shadows of the things that may be? Why show me this if I'm past all hope? The great message of the gospel is that If today you will choose Jesus, if today you will receive his words, then everlasting life will be yours today. These are days of grace. And Jesus, as he stood among those disciples and among the crowds of others, he stands today ready to save you. He's full of pity, full of love, and full of power. It's all about him. It's all about his promises, his words. Choose him today.
We're going to sing a closing uh, hymn that will be on the screen. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow.